All right, everyone. Welcome back to another episode of the Two Planker Podcast. I'm your host, Ethan Schaefer, and today we have Jeff Curry joining the show. Jeff is an East Coast legend, and after 19 years of riding for Lion Skis, he is retiring to focus on his leatherworks business, Dark Forest USA. Links will be in the description to find his website. You can go there and get yourself some handmade goods straight from Jeff himself coming out of Portland, Oregon. As always, if you like the show, be sure to subscribe and give us a rating. Follow us on Instagram at TwoPlankerPod, and send us a DM if you want to see someone on the show. That's all for the intro. Hope you like it. Here we are back with another episode, and Jeff, would you like to introduce yourself for everybody? Hi, my name is Jeff Curry. I'm a East Coaster that migrated out to Oregon and been kind of involved in a lot of different uh, facets of the ski industry from owning a small business to coaching to somewhat of a competitor in my younger days to now um, kind of more focused on like the judging realm. Sick. Cool. So uh, this is actually interesting because this is the second kind of retirement moving on to other things podcast I've had in the past month. First it was LJ and then I saw your announcement. So I kind of just wanted to do the same thing where we go over kind of some of the greatest hits of your career um, and then explore what's for the future. If that's cool with you. Yeah, absolutely. And I kind of like, um, I wanted to like make a statement, but it was in no, it was not meant to be a retirement because I never really thought too much of myself as like a pro skier. So the career was like, kind of like figuring out how to make skiing work for my lifestyle. And um, I just found through social media with like leaving my last company, um, I never made a statement. And to this day, I get people that are confused and they ask me, you know, how's tree fort going? And I'm like, I have to explain, well, I don't do tree fort anymore. And so this was me kind of getting ahead of the curve of like, okay, like I had been people associate me with line skis for so many years. And I wanted to just kind of like step down and, and move on to different parts of my life. Um, and also just explain to people like kind of what's going on. So it wasn't necessarily like I'm leaving skiing, I'm retiring. It just, um, was a way to kind of express that, like, if you see me and I am not on a pair of line skis, like hopefully you already know the story. Cause I'm <laughs> trying to tell it. Yeah. Sick. So you mentioned that you're an East Coast guy. Um, and I told you that I got a lot of family up in the Berkshires. So do you want to explain what uh, what Pittsfield, Massachusetts is like and kind of the scene there, especially what it was like growing when you were growing up? Yeah, so when I was growing up, um, I started out racing and I was like so focused on like becoming a ski racer. And there's a huge um, kind of group of uh, racing people out there that just like, you know, that that's all I knew. And there wasn't really freestyle skiing at that time when I was like seven, eight years old. Um, so this was the option. We didn't have moguls. 
Um, and then kind of like the late 90s, you got ski blading and the X Games. And kind of my story was like one of the local guys was in high school. I was probably in middle school. Um, he ended up, he was sponsored by Solomon, went to the X Games a couple of times on snowblades. Um, and I'm watching him rip around the hill doing these backflips like underneath the chairlift. And I just had this like realization. I was like, what am I doing? Like going to race practice. I'm like, that looks fun. So I started jumping more. I had like, I could do flips when I was young. So I just kind of left the race skis and got on some twin tips, um, probably like 2000 and just started to kind of like explore that realm. And at that time, there was literally only one other kid in my high school that like knew about like what was going on in like the old poor boys movies. So there's only two of us in my hometown, but then when you spread out to the rest of Western Massachusetts, New York, there's all these other kids um, that were part of that like beginning scene, you know, like um, Will Wesson and Andy and Eric Olson in New York. Um, Jack Borland was from Western Mass. There was all those MSA guys from Parker White, Chris Logan. Um, so there was this like awesome little scene that um, really started there. And it's grown so much that now there's all these you know, kids in high school that have twin tips. But when I was growing up, that just wasn't the case. Um, but we were just driven by the movies and like beginning of new school days. There was this website called SAS Films. Um, that was like the first thing that like had uploaded clips of skiers doing cork seven. So I remember like, you know, dial up internet um, days where you would go and you'd literally watch one single clip, it would take eight minutes to load. And then you'd see somebody at Mount Snow doing a cork seven. And so that was kind of like my upbringing um, back on the East Coast. Nice. I mean, do any of those early movies stick out for you? I know that uh, like a lot of the East Coast guys, what was the one? Was it Wicked? I think was a East Coast one out of Mount Snow, maybe? Yeah, Wicked. Um, it kind of like came a little bit later it was like a couple years into like free skiing starting to blow up but it was um this guy neil who was filming a lot of the riders um at mount snow and he kind of assembled like the best guys and that movie is extremely epic in terms of like old school east coast movies um but for me like growing up my like favorite thing to watch um was like the eric eiberg films and um royalty was the one that stuck out to me and that pretty much like is where i positioned my skiing like i wanted to be the people that were in that old movie and then you know i i'd gotten the um matchstick movies i got the poor boys but i like am forever shaped by the that first royalty movie yeah that's so sick man and so i i was reading some articles about you and it's so funny to see how skiing's changed this is the same thing i encountered when i was doing like the steve step research um 
there's articles on ESPN about like specific athletes. Like well, I found one about you, uh, written by Ethan Stone, and um, this one said that so you you, uh, you played baseball every spring, but then your sophomore year of high school, you decided to give up that job, to give that up to get a job to pay your way to summer camp at High North. Does that sound uh, pretty accurate? Yeah, so I kind of always been involved in sports and I kind of had some shoulder issues and um, kind of like moved away from baseball and um, yeah, I decided every day after school, I'd go to work and save up money to go to High North, which back in the day, those films, they always had High North shots. There was Tanner and Pep. They were hitting the quarter pipe, sliding this dragon rail, and it just seemed like that's where I needed to go um, just to like experience it. And that like forever kind of changed my life just going out there. Um, and, you know, I didn't really know what I was getting into when I like wanted to do it, um, but I saved up like enough money. I think at the time it was like $1,500. And then my parents paid for my plane ticket to Whistler for birthday for my birthday. So um, I found myself out there. And once I saw everything that was going on, that's when I like really committed to like the idea of like, this is what I want to do. Like, this is who I am and I want to be involved in it. Nice. And so what was that? What job did you get to uh, to save up that much money? Um, well, this kind of ties into a little bit of like kind of where I'm at now, but um, it, I worked in a plastics factory, so it was like injection molding, and a good family friend um, owned this plastic factory, and I went and worked, it, it was like a, one of the kids I used to grow up racing with, it was his dad, um, so he gave me a job and I did like a number of different things there, but I got to see like making a product and kind of what it is like to like be in a factory. Um, and like my town, so you asked me about Pittsfield, like Berkshire County is a really cool place to live and grow up. And there's so many different like kind of aspects to it, but my town specifically was like the manufacturing town in that community and they used to have like one of the largest um, GE manufacturing plants on the east coast and that's where my grandfather worked he was a foreman in a factory and so I kind of took this high school job and um, worked on some of the machines did kind of some odds and ends stuff but you know the goal in the end was just to save up money and go to summer camp yeah i gotta ask you because i'm curious um since i told you i guess i got a lot of family up there what was your uh, uh view of great barrington when you were growing up because that's where my whole family's at it's kind of hard you know if you're not growing up there it's hard to tell like what how that fits into the region yeah so um Kind of the, so I had the one friend that was in my high school that I skied with, but then there was a couple kids from Great Barrington that also skied. Um, so I had a lot of friends that were like outside of my high school and hometown and Great Barrington to me was like what the Berkshires really like is when you tell people about Berkshire County, like Great Barrington is like the hub of this like artistic, creative, 
um, beautiful community that um, I just like my parents had, you know, pretty typical jobs. But when you go to Great Barrington, you know, your friend's parents are artists, they're metal fabricators, they're just like a little bit more outside the box. And the, the houses just are a little bit different. They're not cookie cutter. They're just like, you know, it's kind of like, it's just unique and a little bit, I don't want to say zany, but like, it just breeds like music and all the, the kind of like, the art side so to me that was like kind of like the cool place to go hang out like the the kids that were growing up they always knew about things that like I didn't get exposed to whether it was music or different like lifestyles and paths that you could go down so it kind of like opened up my eyes to like you don't have to go down the straight and narrow and go to school, get a good job, sit in an office. It was like kind of exposed me to like, hey, you can be creative and, you know, find a different path. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And Great Barrington also has butternut, which I don't know back in your time, but right now it's probably the best uh, terrain park in Southern New England because I don't don't know, they just have a nice mellow run. It's pretty long and they have a really good park crew that, that hooks it up. Yeah, Butternut was really cool. It was a little bit farther away from my house. So I had gone there a couple times and they did like a couple cool events. Um, they did this like ice coast open. So they had like really cool rails and um, a really fun park. So we'd go there, compete. And there was also this like handrail out in front that like was in snowboard movies. And so we would go and set up the handrail. I remember one night we like put our lights out and filmed it and um yeah, it was, it was really cool, but um, I just grew up like 10 minutes away from Bosque, so it was just so convenient, where Butternut was maybe about a half an hour away, mm-hmm. and, um, you know, my dad worked in the rental shop at Bosque to get us uh, season passes, so I just had everything covered there where I would have to pay for lift tickets if I went to Butternut yeah to this, to this day it's still holding up and they're still doing a great job and i think uh my home mountain is getting revamped and so they're trying to kind of maybe nip at the heels a little bit and establish themselves a little bit more um in that realm that's great yeah so and after that in very new england fashion uh you go to champlain college and i know a bunch of people that went there so what was your uh, decision decision making going to Vermont rather than, you know, out West since you had already been exposed to it a little bit. Yeah. So I, when I was, you know, graduating high school, I was trying to figure out what I wanted to do and I knew I wanted to ski. So I only applied to two colleges. I applied to Boulder and then Champlain. Champlain was kind of my backup because I just knew I wanted to go to Colorado. Um, but my dad sat, sat me down and out of state, you know, school, he basically broke down the numbers and was like, Hey, we're going to give you a little bit of money, but like, we can't pay for your college. So at the end of your four years, this is what your debt's going to look like if you go to UC Boulder. And this is what your debt's going to look like if you go to Champlain. And, um, that was pretty eye-opening to me like you don't really think too much about debt in college when you're you're that young 
Um, and also just like the whole Colorado scene, like being so far away from the mountains, I didn't have a car growing up. So it just didn't seem very realistic for me to like go to Colorado, be two hours away from Summit County without a car. Um, I can barely afford, you know, the things that I'm going to need. So it just didn't seem realistic. And it kind of just fell into place where I was like, okay, I guess I'm going to Champlain College. Um, and I'd been to Burlington a couple of times for rail jams. And um, I was totally cool with the situation and ended up being like a really, really um, great decision looking back because the people I got connected with and then the path that I took um, was completely affected by that like east coast hub of uh, a community mm -hmm. yeah and so I, when i was talking to lj he said that he, he went to uvm and he said that burlington was like actually like a pretty big scene kind of what you're saying so who were you uh who was part of the crew back then when you were at uh, champlain did you kind of start me and some other people in the region that were uh, trying to do the same thing you were doing well i had kind of like met most of them through like these rail jams because like growing up in the east coast you're willing to drive like four or five hours just to like go hit a rail so like when you did that you would see the same faces at every single place mount snow would have a big air you'd see all the same people so in high school i like come across kind of the people that were like investing their time in it um and i had a good friend uh john wachecki um that was the guy i was talking about in my high school he went to UVM a year before me. And so I'd visited him. He ended up like rooming with Will Wesson. And um, I kind of like, you know, I spent a little bit of time with them, but I also kind of got like more integrated into like my college and my, like the guy I used to roll with was a snowboarder. Um, he was my roommate for like three years. Mm -hmm. And so I didn't really have like a huge crew. It was like kind of like me and my roommate, we'd go snowboarding or skiing and um, we'd hit the park. And then you'd kind of like, you know, LJ was popping up um, and, you know, some of the UVM guys. Um, but it wasn't like a big like crew scene. It was kind of like just me trying to get some street clips, um, get different tricks for competitions and then really you'd see everybody at the competitions or the rail jams mm -hmm. um, but there was like i do remember specifically letty park was like the beginning of the year will um always built these rails and like chained them up in the woods and then letty park had a ice skating rink and dropped the snow outside so we would every spring we would, or fall, we would set up these rails and just try tricks. So there was like a handful of guys that kind of ended up turning into like the meathead crew or like meatheads kind of brought them in. So those were kind of the guys that um, I used to like, you know, always ski with. Yeah. And it's a bummer to say, cause I feel like I caught the very tail end of it, but the rail jam culture, like you were saying, when I was like, what, what years would that be? That'd be like the early 2010s. Um, there were still rail jams and, you know, you'd see p these dudes come like the YMR crew, which was like the early, like Talty, Talty Dan and all those dudes, they would come down from Vermont and they'd be skiing, you know, at a, at a ski sundown rail jam in the summer. 
but the the sad thing is like those don't really happen anymore so you're not there's not as much of a cohesive community within new england as there was before and like what you're describing it it, it just sounds so sick and it's so funny because now everyone's everyone's familiar with that crew that you're talking about but back then that's just i feel like that's just how new england rocked you know it was kind of a small community and everyone just kind of knew each other yeah yeah no it was um awesome to grow up in that time but it was also like the beginning of the sport and like it's just changed so much it's like matured like past its teenage years it's like in its 20s now so like sometimes you kind of look back and you're like oh man the way it was was so cool but like things change and they evolve and it's just kind of like it isn't what it used to be but that's because that's just how things like move forward um Mm. snowboarding isn't the same as it used to be and you know it's probably for the better you know so but it, it does kind of um it's just kind of a bummer that the way it was isn't what kids are experiencing now. They're just getting a whole different kind of like intro to the sport and the competition scene is just so narrowed where we just had so many cool opportunities and it was just like excitement and passion that was involved in like creating all this stuff. And I think a lot of that has just kind of gone away. Um, especially because of the Olympics and like the, all the dangers that are involved and it has to be like, so protected from like a, you know, to get your parents to sign off on this stuff. Um, it's just very different from what, cause it used to be like, you'd slide down a rail and you get to the end and you got a clip, you know, now if you're not too, 279 with a switch up, and like pretzeling out, like that's not even, that's not a clip anymore, you know? Yeah. yeah. So keeping the, the looking at the timeline that I kind of have written down. So it seems like meatheads um, and, the, and they're the recurring character in any East Coast guy. Uh, it seems like meatheads was kind of the first breakout film uh, that you had. Was it Head for the Hills that they, that they contacted you for? Yeah, so kind of what happened to me was um, one of the athletes got hurt, and I think it was like a knee injury, I forget who it was, but they needed like another rider, and so the team manager for line at the time was like, oh, well, hit up Curry, he's in Burlington, he might be a good option, and they called me up, and of course I said yes, that was like what I had been wanted to do um I was doing it on my own um but it was just like this kind of was more legitimized and um they ended up kind of like throwing me more into like kind of like tree skiing and backcountry stuff and with like my background in racing I just had like decent form and like could you know make it look good um and so after the first shoot they just invited me on another one and another one and another one and so almost all that film was um all backcountry skiing you know which is kind of weird to say backcountry east coast but um it was besides like maybe the sunday river heat harvest stuff i didn't have any rail clips i didn't have any tricks um which was 
kind of what my focus was for the last, you know, eight years, but um, I kind of found that I excelled in the other side. And I think they needed more people like that because they had rails and, and jumps covered with Will, LJ, Clayton, Nick Martini. Those were the guys that they were putting on park shoots. Um, so I kind of like filled this little space that ended up like getting me like a, a ton of shots in that movie. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And what, so what was the vibe like for the seriousness of the production? Cause last night I was going through some of the trailers cause me heads has actually done a surprisingly good job of like not having any other stuff pirated online. And um, I was looking at the trailer for ski gods, which was like 2006. And it really just looked like a low budget traveling circus. Like it looked like, like I think it was a, a follow cam of Will Wesson through the park with like a shaky fisheye shot. So how serious was, was this crew about filming or was it kind of like a, a lax, a lax production that just had a real, a lot of talent pulled together. Yeah. So it was, it was really uh, laxed. Um, they like obviously just progressed as they started making movies. So like from the first one to the last one, they just got better and better. Um, and they brought in new people and, you know, there was like no pressure. It was like really easy going and they paid for everything. Um, so it was this cool experience where I got to go to these places that I never would have gotten to. And um, I didn't have to open up my wallet once, which, you know, a lot of other film companies, like you got to pay your way through a lot of this stuff. So um I got mad respect for those guys and I think they just got better and better as they were like kind of got into their filmmaking um, kind of process. So, mm -hmm. and so, yeah, based on what I've heard sporadically, cause I, I feel like nobody's really dived in on this and, and you obviously know a lot of people in the industry, but the production company paying for everything really seems like a rarity from what I've heard. So what is that like for like an up and coming skier linking up with X, Y, and Z production company. And then that production company saying, oh yeah, let's go to Europe, but you have to buy your own $1,500 ticket. Is that how it goes? Like, what are the finances for someone that's like trying to be, I mean, obviously like it's different for every company, but what does it look like for someone coming up in like the film scene? Yeah, so it, it definitely is different from every company. And I can only tell you what I know, but a lot of it, you know, like the film companies have kind of gone away now, but it was basically like, the ski sponsors would put money into the film and then the director would use that sponsored dollar to pay for those athletes. So you used to see a lot of guys that were in the movies because their ski sponsor specifically gave that company money. Um, and that was like, whatever their contract was, was, hey, we need to have this guy, this guy, and this guy in this film. And so Line was like a headline sponsor. Um, so I don't really know like specifically like what took care of me in that film besides Line, but you know, there are other experiences from different people that I know where they're like, you know, the company gives the film money, but they're still spending their money for you know, beer, snacks, or whatever at the end of the night, but Rooster and Jeff 
paid for everything. They would pick me up in their car. They would drive me there. Um, they would take care of breakfast, lunch, and dinner. They would buy us beer, you know, so they just kind of just took care of us. Um, and I don't know if that's like specifically unique to my experience. Cause I know there's other companies that probably did the same thing, but I also know of a couple companies that kind of kept the money in their control and didn't really release it to the athletes, which puts more pressure on the athlete to, you know, have another job or do something else that covers their travel. Mm -hmm. Wow. That's interesting. Um, Cool. So after that movie, I'm not sure where prime cut falls in, but it seems like, like after kind of your, your film breakout, you suffered a, a pretty bad ACL injury. Um, from what I've read. So do you want to go into that and kind of what happened and the ramifications of kind of being, being stuck in bed? Yeah. So I just done that head for the Hills and kind of like started to feel the momentum. And the next year I was like, okay, I'm going to do even more. I was kind of lined up on a bunch of, you know, I was just going to be included in the next film. And I set up my classes to be all online for the semester um, so that I could travel and still continue my school. Um, but the first or second day I got on snow, I ended up like tearing my ACL. And it was kind of like one of those situations where I just got a new pair of skis mounted, didn't check my dins, and like my heel was just at like 11. And uh, it didn't release. It was just like a weird twist off a rail, nothing like crazy. And my knee just popped, um, did meniscus damage and couldn't finish out the year. Um, so that kind of led me to like, what can I do next? And I knew I wanted to come back, but for the time being, I kind of like decided like, not to get surgery right away. I didn't want to be hobbling around Burlington in the icy hilly streets with crutches. So I just like rehabbed and ended up like linking up with a couple kids and kind of like getting a little coaching program together. And within a month and a half, I was back on snow. So it's like early November, I tore it. And then, you know, halfway through December, January, I was like back on snow, just kind of cruising around and started coaching some athletes, um, like super young kids. But I was like thinking maybe like if I wanted to do something after college in the ski industry, maybe coaching was like a good route. So I wanted to like get some experience coaching kids. So I just kind of took that on. Um, and it was like a bummer that like, I didn't get to partake in the film. Um, but it was like years later after I moved out to Oregon that they called me back for the last film. They were trying to like organize some of like the athletes that had been in like the films throughout the years. And they wanted to just include me in like the, um, the final 10 year movie. And so I actually traveled back from Oregon after I moved out and started working at Dells for a couple weeks um, to film with them on that film. Mm -hmm. Cool. Yeah. Cause I had, uh, I had prime cut written down, but you know, I could have looked when it was made, but just wanted to ask you. Yeah. And so actually this is a, a funny story. I wanted to like, <laughs> I, don't, I've, I haven't really shared it with anybody, but um, so 
there was this one shoot that they were trying to do for years in Michigan. I think they did it one year with Garai, but it was like the snow, like rarely hit it. But when it did, it like was amazing. And so they were like, oh, we're going to have you come back and film uh, these powder shots. And I'm like, okay, cool. Like, this is what I used to do. It's very comfortable. And I had just like broken my wrist and so I'm sitting at home, like trying to like figure out how to pull a plant with a cast on. And I'm like, I can't do it. It's just going to look weird. So I made the decision to cut my cast off like a couple of days before I left to like start to break it loose again and figure out how to pull a plant. And when I got back, they were like, oh yeah, the snowstorm didn't hit. You're going to go hit rails with LJ. And I'm like, what? Like, I thought I was going to be skiing, like, trees and powder, and, like, I have this, like, pretty fragile wrist, and you're going to send me out with LJ, and I just know the stuff that he hits, and I'm, like, the whole time I was shooting, I was just so nervous, like, not to fall or put my hand down, um, and so that whole, like, whale's tail thing that we did, like, I'm just trying my hardest not to do anything like so far outside of my realm which I just used to go hard when I was a kid I would fall I'd blow up and I've gotten hurt quite a bit but I was like really trying to push myself not to do that but still get a clip that was like worth putting in the film so that was kind of a crazy experience for me to like go from broken wrist to cutting it off to all of a sudden trying some of the hardest things that like you know, you're going to fall, you know? Yeah. And uh, yeah, it was a crazy experience. So that was the shoot with the, uh, the whale tail backflip that you did. Yeah. Yeah. It was like that. We hit like a stair set um, in Burlington. We did like a handful of kind of like more urban features and it wasn't necessarily just like all rails, but it was kind of like cool little features that they had like, they'd already filmed so much. So it's like kind of like, filling in things that haven't been done that are a little bit more outside the box. Um, and then LJ just like, whatever he sees, he's going to do something crazy on it. So it's like, you're going to show up to a spot with LJ, you got to do something that, um, you know, can compete or look good next to his clips. So it was just like kind of a nerve wracking experience. I thought it was going to be nice and chill and, you know, just get some powder bopping and, no, it was like sliding metal and cement stairs. And then that whale's tail jump was kind of like ridiculous getting po- pulled in by a, a snowmobile. There was no snow. They basically scraped all the snow to build that jump. And it was pretty large. Like it was, I mean, but looking back, it was like one of the coolest experiences to be part of. Cause it's like an iconic thing now. And it was like, I was there. I got to like partake in that. And I don't think anybody's ever going to get that opportunity again. So I was kind of honored to like be, be there while that all went down. Yeah. And, and the photo from it too. I mean, obviously LJ takes the cake and, and I've already probably talked, I think this is the third episode where I've mentioned it, but uh, you're, the photo Dan took of you ripping the backflip over that is pretty, is pretty up there for ski photos. Yeah, no, I was like, I was stoked to have that. And I did like a radio seven and basically like the story of that day was like myself, Will Hibbs, Ross and LJ. And um, 
I, I basically, I wanted to do double backflip over it, but the, like I said, with the wrist thing, I was like so nervous and that's really what I wanted to do on it. I ended up like backing off. And once LJ started doing the 12, um, we'd already got a, a couple clips each on it. I got like the backflip. I got road seven, maybe one other thing that just didn't make the film. Um, but we all decided collectively, like, let's just give LJ this chance. Like, cause we already got shots. We weren't like, we could have gotten a couple more. Um, but we just realized how important it was for the film and for LJ to get this shot. So literally the last two plus hours was LJ trying that. Duck. He tried it like 40 times and he landed on his feet every single time but he kept blowing up on the landing. So like he got it right at the end, but we kind of like all rallied behind LJ and sat back and watched him just chuck his meat. And, um, you know, the rest goes down, down in history. That's awesome. Yeah. So shout out to the meathead guys. Those guys really did a, a good thing for the East coast. Um, so we, I mean, we were talking about this before, so you have the ACL injury, so you're going to kind of have to reevaluate yourself. And then you're also graduating college in 2009 in like the worst job market ever. So um, how did you end up landing at Wendell's where you, where you ended up staying for almost 10 years after that? Yeah. So with like Will and Andy and LJ and those guys, there was this guy, Jeremiah Paquette, who was a snowboarder and he would hit rails with us. It was just kind of like, very in line with like what will was doing and he went to uvm and he was a year older than i was and he moved out to wendell's um the year prior and i kind of was like searching for a coaching position and i applied for like the mount snow academy job and just didn't really look outside of like the east coast and I think the word got out that I was looking and I randomly, I remember like exactly where I was, but I got a phone call from Jeremiah. Um, it's kind of, people kind of know him as germ. He was the saga person forever. He called me up and was like, Hey, do you want to coach with me at Wendell's for this weekend program? We need a coach. And I was like, really? Like, like, uh, let me think about it. You know, like I just had, kind of came out of the blue and then when I thought about it I was like I I need to take this opportunity so like without um really searching for other jobs I kind of just bailed on what I was doing and set my sights on Oregon and and moved out there and first started out like in the winter where most people get hired in the summer so I was working with just a couple kids on the weekend it was like local Portland um kind of Mount Hood area kids and they were doing like USASA events. And so that was like my first real job coaching um, outside of like the kids I rallied together. And then uh, once I completed the winter, uh, that was all I was guaranteed was like, you know, a winter job. Uh, I did a good enough job where they wanted to keep me around. And then I went into the summer program. And once I experienced that, like I didn't want to do anything else. It was like, I felt like I kind of landed in the right spot. And after like a couple summers, I ended up progressing to like the 
uh, academy side of Wendell's, which was kind of just starting up when I got out there and it got big enough where they needed an assistant coach. So after one of the summers, I got hired on to be assistant coach for Wendell's Academy because they had went from like two or three kids to six or seven and they just needed uh, an extra coach to kind of roll with the crew. Mm -hmm. And so I've been looking forward to asking you about this because I read this in an article and I thought it was funny. So you've, you've probably coached a lot of the kids that uh, a lot of the, a lot of the younger guys that are kind of dominating the scene now. And so in this, in this article that I read, it said that uh, you were coaching Nick Gepper and uh, you pulled him aside and you basically told him, dude, your style sucks. Fix it. Is that, is that true? Yeah. I mean, that was like a quote from, from Ethan. I probably said that, but basically I worked with this guy, Mike Hanley, and he was like this extremely like good coach at the technical side of things but he didn't really like pick up like on the style and so it was almost like our relationship was like good cop bad cop he would like push them into these rotations and then he would like cling his poles and get so excited when they would do something like that they'd never done before and then I would come in and I would just knock them down and basically just destroy their style and try to like you know now looking back, I probably would have approached it differently, but I used to just hate on like those things and basically instill like, yeah, you, you did it, but now you need to do it like way differently and you need to like fix this. And Gepper was kind of like coming onto the scene and I just saw like his trajectory. And if he kept going in that like technical side, he was going to get a lot of hate on the style side, which I think affected him and he kind of fixed some things, but like he kept going in that direction. And so I was always there to remind him like, Hey, don't just go for the next rotation. Like try this 10 more times and figure out your grab, figure out this and that. And so we had like a cool little relationship where um, I kind of just like, just picked him apart. And I think that's what makes me a good judge at this point is like, I'm able to pick apart, skiing and not just see like the rotations and the technical side but also seeing like what makes our sport so unique is the style aspect and I know what I am attracted to um but um and I can like help people go in that way but it's also like a free sport to do whatever you want so I think you should be able to make it look however you want so I kind of like evolved into like figuring out what they wanted and then helping them um, kind of achieve their style and look and not just saying how I wanted it to look, which I think a lot of coaches um, now specifically just kind of like have this formula and they like push you into this kind of world that uh, makes a lot of the same or a lot of the athletes coming out of the same hills look the same. Like I go um, to a lot of different events and like I can pick out Waterville kids all day long because they're coached by the same guy. They do the, um, the airbag and they just have a specific style. So it's kind of like takes away from like the individuality that like 
you know, Nick has his own style and that's uniquely his. Um, and then you got Henrik that has his own style. And I think the more we push the individuality and keep it just safe from the aerials, the um, moguls, that kind of side of skiing, um, it, it's only going to help us moving forward rather than pushing into this like you know last year this run won now you need to learn this run you need to do it this way it's like it needs to be free and open and i think that's kind of what attracted me to the sport in the beginning so mm-hmm. yeah so i mean by 2010 there was a lot of a lot of camps and a lot of academies did you have any of the other uh guys that people might know um, so when I was assistant coach, um, Alex Blue Marchand came out and then Alex Hackle came out when he was super young. Um, so those are like kind of the guys that are still like resonating in the sport. Alex has kind of moved on from competing. Um, but those are the three big names. And then past that, there was like a handful of like extremely talented kids, um, that just never reached like the highest level, um, but it was like amazing to kind of see Alex Hackle's like worth work ethic and like his climb because he had the biggest climb out of all three of those. And he found his spot where Alex came out and he had a huge amount of talent before he got there. And then he was able to excel that forward. And I think the same for Nick is Nick was very talented and driven. Um, so he had already reached this level and just needed like a couple steps forward where uh, Alex really kind of like took the biggest leaps in the shortest amount of time. And it really like came down to like how hard he worked, how passionate he was and like determination. And like, he didn't, care what anybody said he went and did what he wanted to because that's what he like he came to our academy because the coach at the school he was going to which was uh, it was at Sunday River I forget the name of the school but the coach told him he would never be anything in skiing and basically like put him on like like it'd be like benching somebody um, in a basketball game, not giving him the opportunity. And so his family decided like he needed someone that would support him. And uh, to me, that's like the coolest thing that like he was told by somebody he would never do something. And then he came out and he did it. And like, to me, I was like the biggest success story that like I experienced. And I walked away like learning so much from those kids even though like I'm the one that's like supposed to be teaching them I have like more life experience like I gained so much um, knowledge and appreciation from working with those guys because they're world-class people and um, in order to reach that level it's not because of your coach it's because of who you are and so I walked away just learning a lot about myself and like how to achieve your goals by working with kids that were so goal-driven and determined. And yeah, it was like, I think a great experience for both of us or all of us, you know, I don't know what they'd say about me. Um, Cause I kind of did play that bad cop role a little bit. Um, 
but it was like I think that was kind of my tactic was to like make them feel like it never was enough so that they kept going instead of like settling and feeling comfortable like I got it it's like no go do it again like uh, really like wasn't what you thought it was like you can do it better and so um yeah it was a kind of a cool experience um to go from like a mildly successful skier to like uh, a coach that like the athletes started to be successful. So like, I kind of like um, got to share that experience with them. Yeah. I don't know if you've seen the movie whiplash, but um, it's funny to imagine you as, as, as the hard out drum teacher from that movie, just in their face, telling them that their style is bad. <laughs> no matter what. I wasn't they yelling at them, you know, like I wasn't like the bad cop in a TV show, like screaming, but I would definitely like, you know, just, harp on them a little bit and you know yeah definitely so when so when did you start moving into the kind of entrepreneurial space with uh tree fort so it was kind of like once i was at wendell's we used to have this um it was like a coach's sale and i would just see all these kids with money they would come and want to buy stuff from the coaches and i didn't have much stuff to sell them, but I would watch some of these like kind of um, higher end skiers, like people that had more sponsors than me that had all this gear and they're gonna make like selling all our stuff to these kids. So I kind of like started thinking like, okay, what could I sell to these skiers that come every summer? And I just also recognized that like Grenade and Saga and all these companies kind of started at Wendell's. So I kind of had this plan of like, what could I make that isn't really existing rather than just putting a logo on something and selling a hat or a t-shirt. It's like, what can we make that is missing in the sport? And at that time, all these like, people with Red Bull helmets, Tom Walsh, LJ, they're in all these films, they're wearing shoelace suspenders. So there's like that age of shoelace suspenders. So my friend and I um, decided that we were going to make suspenders for skiers. And that's like really where it started from. Wow, that's sick. And so, um, I mean, like you said, you grew up kind of in a uh, manufacturing town. You had a manufacturing job. So like, what was the importance of, of making stuff within the U S for you? Well, where I grew up and the time that I grew up, the kind of government decided it was like Bill Clinton's years. He basically decided um, that they wanted to start opening up trading with China and so once you saw, um, it was like the North American Free Trade Agreement, um, they started to allow China to partake in the global economy. And that's when you saw all these jobs just jump overseas. And so the town that I lived in was a huge manufacturing town. And as soon as that was, they had the ability to do that, everything left my town and so my town was like kind of like booming back in the day and then it just started to like crumble so for me it was like kind of coming from a middle class family and like working in a factory it's like that's what middle class 
citizens do is they go to work you know that's what detroit was built on there's like so many of these cities that were manufacturing towns and now you've seen the crippling effects of the towns falling to pieces because they don't have jobs there so once i started making products i realized that i just wanted to like do it the right way and like build up communities and keep our money like to and give it to people that like need it um not that like the rest of the world doesn't need money to survive because i think manufacturing overseas um can be done the right way so it's not like uh, u.s made is the way to go um but that was just like my kind of like driving force and tree four at the time we were like really stuck on like having the symbolism behind our brand and our logo. And so part of it was to like lift people up around us. Um, and so that was like kind of tied into our branding was to like lift the community and like build this platform um, that was higher than us and just support um, local people. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So, I mean, what did, what, what did that look like at the time supporting local people like were you hooking up your buddies with jobs you're like hey dude i just started this company and they're like oh sick i'm gonna go work for jeff this is awesome like, um, what, well, what did first, it look like we started out with a guy in vancouver washington so he was like making stuff out of his garage he had like a team of like three or four people so they were like building our suspenders and kind of our smaller products and that was kind of like us just figuring out how to make something with somebody else. Cause we first started like making it all ourselves and the company never really got past like more than one employee. We had somebody employed for us, but it wasn't like making enough money to like create this team. But we did end up finding a factory in New York and we shipped um, them a prototype. They built us some stuff, kind of quoted us out. And so the last probably three or four years, uh, we were working with this company. I'd never been to the factory, but we were like building all of our stuff in New York, sending them our labels. And, um, you know, I wanted it to get bigger and better than that. It just, for other reasons, it didn't really, um, go super big at the time um but it was like we were giving this company in new york like a ton of work to do for us and we ended up going from like you know 50 travelers trunks to 250 to a thousand so we were just kind of like building our quantities and um kind of like figuring out how to make something, which wasn't something we, uh, my partner and I learned in college, how to manufacture something. We learned more like the marketing sides and the, the things of like building a business. So that was like a really cool experience to learn how, how to kind of take an idea to market. Mm -hmm. which it took a little bit longer. Like we both had full-time jobs. So it just took a little bit longer rather than like you know, quitting our jobs and then doing this full time. So it took a, a you know, quite a bit of time to scale. Mm -hmm. And so, I mean, at the very beginning of this, you mentioned that you left, you left that company and uh, people still think you're affiliated with it. So what was your uh, departure like from that? And how soon afterwards did you start Dark Forest? 
Yeah. So kind of the catalyst for me was I had like another knee injury and um, I had been taking like kind of like a financial hit trying to get this company to the point that we could quit and go full-time. So we were putting all of our money back in and not taking it out. And so I was like draining my finances for years. And then I blew my knee crashed my car on the way home from the hospital, found out I didn't have car insurance because I had moved out of my house and the car insurance bill was in my old mailbox. And so I got like slammed um, all at once and like found myself uh, like completely bankrupt. And so I had to like work my ass off through like three or four different jobs while doing tree fort. And like, got myself back together. But at that point, I realized that like, I can't do all of these other jobs and run this business. Like I, you know, when you own a company, you always put your company first, it's your baby. And so I was like putting the company well beyond my, before myself. And then it just got to a point where I was like, I need to like, focus on myself, which sounds selfish, but I just had to like kind of self-reflect and be like, what's the most important thing? And like myself is the most important thing. If I'm not healthy and strong, I can't do this job. And just, yeah, I think it was probably six months of like going to the gym four or five times a day, doing construction for, uh, you know, five days a week, 40 hours a week, also doing tree fort at the same time and then doing like one or two other things. So I literally did not have a break for six months and it just wore me out. And then I think I just had a shift in my mind. It was like, I can't do this forever. And um, we had gotten to a point where we didn't know what our next move was. We weren't really um, covering our own salaries so the discussion was like, how do we grow this? And we couldn't decide on that decision. We were just split. And so it was kind of like at a standstill. It just kind of stuck for a year or two and wasn't moving forward. And so I think the only way to have it move forward was to, to step back and have one person make decisions rather than two people with conflicting ideas that just pull away from each other rather than working uh, symbiotically in a forward direction. We just couldn't agree on that, that direction. Yeah. So, um, so when, I mean, that, first of all, that really sucks that you got hurt and then crashed your car on the way home from the hospital. Um, so like, how long was it until you were, no pun intended, back on your feet and you were able to start up a, a new business? Um, well, so that was when I was 30. It was like, that was terrible. I turned 30 and then like within 10 days, all those things happened. And it was like, you know, and they say the three things, you know, they come in threes. It was, yeah, it was all three things that just crippled me. Um, and while I was at tree Four, I started to get like, kind of like invested in like quality, like what's going to be like the highest quality, long lasting thing. 
and I kind of like stumbled into leatherworking. Um, didn't know what I was doing at first, but I started to like kind of make some wallets and do some stuff. So I was producing like a small line of goods for Tree4 under that brand and kind of learning as I, I went with it. Um, and so um, I don't know exactly the timeline because it took me about a year to get back to like skiing and trying stuff again um but i just had like a shift in my mind and in the back of my head like we we had kind of had like conversations of like splitting the leather away from the business and kind of like making it more of my thing or we just didn't really know where it was going to go and then um i decided at one point that like yeah i'm just going to go for it i'm going to make my own logo i'm going to make different things not the stuff that i'm making for tree for i'll continue to do those but i'm gonna like kind of i went more like the etsy route and just tried to like make a little side hustle for myself um at that time i stopped doing construction so i was kind of like a little bit bored back on my feet and kind of got a little bit more stable um and i think i was i was doing a lot of judging at that point so i was like traveling a bunch, making a little bit of side money. And then, um, yeah, I decided like, let's come up with this new brand and I'm going to do it on my own. And like, out of like some of the frustration with my business partner and not agreeing on things, it was like, I can take it into my own hands and I can make decisions and just go with it. So, um, I think in 2019, uh, the end of 2019, when I, um, going into Christmas, that's when I like kind of got my stamp made, made a couple things, built an Etsy, and that's where I really kind of like kicked that off. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so you want to do a quick plug just for uh, like what what products people can find with your company uh, while we're talking about it? Yeah, so I kind of like just the way it's evolved. I wanted a couple different things in my lineup. So I've kind of just been focusing on like kind of minimalist wallets um, and really like high-end materials and just like the more handcrafted um, constructions. So I've kind of flirted with a couple different ideas, but I do like mainly wallets and then small leather goods that could be like little keychain lanyards, uh, trays for your desk, notebook covers. And I have like a small line of like dog collars and leashes and stuff like that. So it's kind of like accessories, wallets, and a little bit of dog stuff. Um, And moving forward, I I have some other ideas, but I think I'm going to kind of like just focus on that and really get my production and quantity and efficiency up before I try to go into another line of goods. So um, if you want to check it out, you can go on Instagram. It's called Dark Forest USA. Um, That'd be darkforestusa.com. And you can reach out to me on Instagram, check out my website. And I'm constantly just doing like new colors and kind of like some new designs. So I'm kind of just filling out the, the lineup of wallets. So hopefully I reach, you know, I'd make a product that reaches almost every single person. So from small wallets, the big ones, um, I'm trying to cover that basis. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So that's the money maker now. 
Um, but you're still involved in the ski ski world, like you said. So how did you get into judging? Because I feel like that's kind of a uh, um, how would you describe it? I don't even know. Like you don't you don't see job postings for judges is is basically what I'm getting at. Like it, it seems like a very inside like industry insider type of thing. So what was your uh, route into judging? Yeah. So at that time, there was another guy at Wendell's, uh, Jason Aaron's, and he knows me really well and kind of like saw like that I wasn't paying myself for my company and obviously wanted me to succeed. But he said, hey, you know, like there might be an opportunity where you could you know, make a little bit of side income. It's not a lot of money, but you could, you know, we could use more judges is basically what he was going for is like how, and he's still working on like how to get new people in because it's it, like you said, there's no job postings. Um, but I did have the background in coaching and like the trick recognition, which is the biggest thing is being able to recognize like what's happening and then evaluating the difficulty and the style and all that involved in it. So he kind of just got me into a couple of events and I realized that like I could work on the road because uh, a lot of what I was doing at Treefort was like the marketing side sales. So I could bring my computer, I could still do my work for Treefort and while I was gone, um, they cover all your expenses. So I wasn't spending any money as long as I didn't go out to the bar and spend, you know, too much on drinks. I would make a little bit of money, but then I was probably traveling like three to four weeks a month. And so I wasn't spending any money while I was gone. So it just ended up being like kind of a cool little thing for me to like you know, just kind of like hold strong for a little bit and save money, make a little bit. And also just like the connections I made on the road, I would find new customers all day long, where when I'm stuck in the woods in Mount Hood, you know, it's such a small community, I'm not like branching out and um, finding new customers. So it was like a win-win um, in terms of like where I was going and what I wanted to do. Wow. Cool. So what, so what's currently on your, uh, what events do you have in the rotation for your judging right now? Um, I just wrapped up to, I did do tour this year, X games. Um, and I'm going to go to Switzerland for the junior world championships in March. So kind of like this year, my focus has been, like doing less events and trying to do like higher end events so that I have more time to focus on my business because this one is a little bit different where I'm not just doing marketing, I'm building the product. Um, so I kind of decided I wanted to like dial back and last year kind of ended up doing that anyways, just because of COVID and how hard it was for events. So I, I went from probably doing like eight to 12 events a year to like, I just really wanted to do like one event a month. Um, Cause that's all I can afford in my schedule. Um, so uh, I'm pretty stoked about that and took me quite a while to get to the point where I got invited to do Detour X Games. Uh, that was like the overall goal was kind of, you put your time in, did a bunch of um, B-level events, did a bunch of C-level stuff. I, I go to nationals every year, um, which is kind of cool to see like kids from all over the country. Um, so I guess I didn't mention that, but I'll probably be at USASA nationals and that's beginning of the April. 
and it's just like hundreds of kids. Um, and it's, it's a crazy work week, but they're all so stoked to be out there. And it's kind of cool to see, like, you get to see like some of these kids that just, you're like, that kid could be somewhere one day. Like I remember, uh, specifically like Nico, um, was competing at it one year and he could just see this kid in his slope style run. He was just like light years ahead of everybody. Um, so that was kind of cool. Like see where he is now kind of went more in the half pipe world, but, um, yeah, it's like, you can see, you can recognize talent when it's there, when they're like 10 years old and they can do like both way cork nines. And you're like, what the hell? Like, I worked so hard in my life and I can't do a right cork nine. Like, and this little kid is just slaying it. Like it's, it's just, there's no effort. Yeah. Sick. So, I mean, we talked about this before and I've, and we, I went over this on the on the uh, episode with Jeff Schmuck, like being a judge is difficult and it's thankless and uh, you're often the bad guy. So do you want to give some like insight into what the judging setup is like at X games? And, you know, what's going on behind the curtain and how many people, like, I don't know how specific you want to get, but like who's involved, how does it work just to like give people some clarity for what happens? Yeah. So at each event, um, it's kind of different from like world cups to, you know, B level events. So like if you're doing like a rev tour, there's no television, you're watching it from so far away. You can, you, you don't have any replays. So like you, you watch a half pipe run, it's really hard to see if they're grabbing, if they're slapping their boot from all at the bottom of the pipe. So in turn, you get a bunch of like angry coaches because they think you saw it wrong. Maybe you did. There's room for error. Then when you get up to the higher levels, there's television, there's replays, um, which is good and bad. So with X Games, they want scores in super quick um, because they're on a TV schedule. And this year there was three scoring judges and one head judge. So the scoring judges are the ones that are writing down the runs. They're trying to figure out numbers for each run. And the head judge is the one that's kind of overseeing it. He can relay to the TV guy or the person inside of our booth. Hey, we need to see this uh, jump three. We need to see if that grab was locked in. So he's managing the group. We're scoring it. We're having discussion. We get our scores in and once the score is in the head judge signs off on it and says good we can move on because it's um it's basically like certifying the score because sometimes you need more space um in terms of like the numbers and um the pace at which x games goes is just super fast and they're very very professional and it was like an awesome experience to be part of and kind of like go from like sitting outside in the cold in a booth writing on a piece of paper to like being in front of a screen in a heated container um and having replays so you can like be like i think he grabbed boot did he did he touch his hand or was it just like, you know, was it a supporting hand or was it just like a little bit of a knuckle drag? Cause all those things make a huge difference. And we're, we're very critical on mistakes, execution, difficulty and all that stuff. So um, it just being a judge sport, there's so much room for error and debate. So that's why it causes a lot of like issues at the end because everybody sees it differently, but 
in the booth, we all get to have an opinion and then we unify our opinion and, and move forward. And, and sometimes there's disagreements, um, but it comes down to a vote or um, sometimes the discussion goes pretty long and it can kind of get heated, but that's kind of like our sport. And there's a lot of passionate people involved that are either athletes or judges. Overall, these are not decisions or things that you guys are taking lightly. Like, it seems like you guys are in the booth really, you guys really care about, about what's happening and the decision. It's not something that you're just carelessly, oh, yep, throw this out, throw this out. Like, you guys actually really give a shit about the sport and the future of it and the competition. Yeah, I mean, my whole life has been uh, in the ski world. So that's, like, what I care about the most. And the future of the sport, like, needs to be, um, taken seriously. So everybody that goes in, um, they're not doing it for the money. They're doing it because they're passionate and we're all debating different, you know, parts of the sport. And that's like, kind of like what you see online is people are debating it. And so that's what we're doing in real time. And we're doing it like to the best of our ability with years of experience and, acknowledging like what the athletes want because there's a lot of conversations that we have with them um, because a lot of us you know got to a certain point of the sport but we've never done 1800s you know so like is a forward dub 18 forward to forward is that harder than a switch 18 switch to switch and so there can be a debate either way so how do you score one above the other we go and talk to the athletes we get to understand like what's easier or harder for them and kind of what we found out is it does come down to each person so we're assigning difficulty to these tricks but not each trick is more or less harder or less harder to certain people and like Coming from my, you know, coaching athletic background, like a forward dub eight, uh, forward dub 18 would be so hard to land because you're coming in blind. So you're not visibly seeing your landing, um, which to me is more difficult compared to a switch 18 where you get to see at 16, um, you get to see your landing, you can just shift your hips in, you get a better spot. Um, and so that would be like what I would think, but then it's talking to some athletes, they, they're like, no, it's actually easier, but to another athlete, it could be harder. So that's like, we've just gotten to this crazy part of our sport that like, when you watch the big airs, it's just so incredible that they are doing what they're doing and performing it the way they are and stomping like the Olympics that just went down, like there was a couple crashes, but everyone was so on point and the amount of uh, rotations and like well or well executed grabs was just like insane. Like uh, it's just so crazy. And then your job is to assign scores for those and uh, keep things tight, also separate things. Uh, so it's uh, not an easy job, um, but because we are like invested in the sport, it's something that we all love to do. And we all love talk skiing. That's why I'm like here talking to you. It's like, I love talking skiing. And when I get to go in a judging booth, 
I get to talk skiing and I get to have a different opinion from the guy next to me, but we all respect each other. And in the end, we have to make a decision. So not everything is like 100% agreed upon. Um, but at the end of the day, we have to um, do, we have to create a rank. And so that's what we do. And um, sometimes we don't hear a word and everybody's happy. And other times we could be getting beat up for three weeks after an event because the internet just doesn't lay off. Um, they just keep going and going. And so it's kind of a, uh, it's like a catch 22. I get to do what I love, but then you're, you're going to make people upset. They could be your friends that are competing or the coaches or, you know, the internet. <laughs> yeah, definitely. And, and people generally have a short memory in terms of every year people say it on it, like when they're all the complaining after X games, there's people in the threads like, yep, everyone will forget about this in a week and then bitch and moan next year about the same thing. So it's a, it's a, it's a vicious cycle. And I don't, I'm certainly not jealous of your job in that regard. Um, Cool. So we are, we're at the point, we're at the, our cutoff point. I would just like to slip in some viewer questions just to let these kids get their, uh, their questions into you, if that's all right. Yeah, let's do it. Cool. So uh, just a few, we have Mans uh, Moliga. I, his name is very hard to pronounce. Shout out. He's a ski sundown kid. He said, why line skis? Um, Line was like, I just remember the first like twin tips that came out that came into my ski shop and um, you know, that, that's such a good question. Cause I'm looking back at it and it just was like, you know, probably now that I think about it, my favorite team growing up was line. So it was like five guys. It was Eric Pollard, Mike Wilson, Skogan Sprang, Dash Long, and Mike Nick. And so I just, I just liked their skiing the best. And so it was really the team that basically influenced me into like feeling the vibe of this brand um and so the videos that i watched the people i aspired to be like um were all online and they were out of burlington vermont and i got hooked up with like the new england rep when i was like 15 um he gave me a pair of skis and it just stuck it like never went away and like the community aspect of the brand like became more of like a family so like once I got into it um we all like kind of were on the same page and like it kind of like as the years went on um kind of just became like this cool thing to be part of and it was like you know Atomic, uh, Rosignol, Solomon, all these other brands like they didn't ever like treat you like a family it was kind of like once you were you know, not performing, they would just let you go. And like line, like even like when I got hurt and like wasn't performing, they never like put any like pressure on me or like gave me the feeling that they were going to drop me, you know, like, and it was like going from a rep rider to like kind of like bottom end of the team to eventually getting onto the pro team. And that whole transition was like, they were just like supportive and like had respect for what I had done, what I'm doing. And like, 
where I'm involved in the sport. So I think they just always treat it as like a lot of respect um, because they see like the importance in like what I was doing in the coaching side and with the judging, they were like just very supportive of, of me and my skiing. And um, yeah, there was uh, no reason to look anywhere else. And I think they just did a really great job like branding themselves and advocating for the sport rather than podiums or money or whatever it is. They just stuck true to like what the sport was back in the day and they're, they're still doing the same. Nice. Uh, the other one we have is from Holden Baldassi. Baldassi. Uh, let me know how to pronounce that, Holden. Um, so what made you want to get into leather work? Kind of answer that a little bit. Uh, any more collabs with Joystick coming up? Ooh, that's a good question. Um, well, we did talk about kind of like I was looking for like something that was just going to last a long time and, and the high quality stuff. As I get older, I just like just hate that we live in like a garbage society where you buy something and you throw it away. So I, I was like, if I was going to put my time and energy into something, it was like to create something that like has value and is almost like an heirloom where you hold on to it and you pass it down. Like how many things do you have that are like from your grandparents era that like still work and you still use. Like I have a handful of things that like, I really appreciate that side. So my goal was to kind of like make something like that. And leather was like the perfect medium. Um, and beyond that, I'm actually like this perfect timing because I am working on something right now for joystick. Um, I'm gonna probably finish it up in the next week and then you'll see it come out. But yeah, there's something cool that we've been working on, talking about for a while, and uh, it should be here shortly. And if you know what I make, um, there's probably one easy guess of what that product would be. Nice, awesome. All right, so um, Tom Caruso asks, uh, what was your involvement with the development of the line blade? Because it seems like uh, you're pretty stoked on it at the very least. So did you have a hand in the development of that? No, actually, I don't. Um, they worked on that for a while. It was um, the engineer that has been there for the last couple years. And he basically had this brainchild. And like being line, they just like wanted to kind of change the game a little bit. Um, and so the last year that Josh Malchek was involved with the brand, I think they were like, they created this product and they're like, who could be like kind of the face of this ski? Like who is, you know, this ski made for? And I had been kind of like doing a bunch of different things with them. Like coming from park, I ended up like kind of being on the sick day program for a while. So I was kind of promoting the ski that was like all mountain free ride, fun, light, um, just not specifically a park ski. And so I had like a ton of experience doing that. And so when they came up with this ski, um, I was just like an easy go-to um, also being in Oregon. So I'm super close to Seattle and stuff like that. So I wish I could credit myself for <laughs> any of the development, but the ski was done and I just had to ski on it. And it was like the easiest ski for me to like actually fall in love with and generally um, like, say how cool it was like it was 
something that they worked really hard on and it just came out like so fun. Like if you're, you know, I'm at the point where my knees are sore. I'm not really taking a lot of risk in the park and I just want to have fun on the mountain. And that ski like made the mountain like more exciting with the side cut and the flex. Um, so yeah, I could talk about that ski for a long time. Cause I was like, for the last two years, that was like primarily my job on the line side. Um, but um, yeah, it just was something that like fell into my lap and I like noticed my little niche on the team, which I'm not going to be competing against Will or Tom in the park. So what can I do? And that's kind of where I put my efforts and really just tried to perfect like the imaging side and, and trying to get some video and cool content for them on um, like a non-specific park ski. Nice. So the last question we have, and this is something we kind of glossed over, even though we've talked about these guys all throughout it. Uh, Grant Harris asks, what is your favorite traveling circus memory? Oh man. Um, like that crew and like what you get to do, it's like so outside of the box that like you just get to do some kind of crazy wacky things. And so I probably have like a handful of like standout moments, but um, kind of the coolest thing that like I got to experience was the sand skiing episode. Um, and it's all like super experimental. Like a lot of the things they're doing, they just have a vision and go with it. And Will or Andy wanted to try this out because I'd seen like people sandboarding. So they went to the hardware store, bought this material um, and we like glued it to the bottom of our skis and just went out and tried it out. Um, but I think at the same time, like we did Mount Adams and we like camped out and hiked up. And I just remember like Eric eating this fish. And like, so like on the hill, there was like cool things that happened, but then outside you're just like hanging out, like kind of ski bum life. And so the whole like experience in general was the memory, not like one standout. Um, and cause I did a lot of like the Mount Hood episodes and I was just like, you know, Shane would come out the hood and we'd ski the park. So I didn't get to do like any of like the Japan or overseas stuff, but I guess the sand skiing was like the most unique thing. And like, that is definitely going to be a standout for years like later. And I kind of had this like alternate ego when I was growing up called Jean Jacket Jeff. So like I busted out the Jean Jacket uh, for that episode. So I was kind of like hanging on to the um, old school uh, East Coast guy in me. And um, I don't get to tell a story very much anymore, but like I was told like at a very young age to just like wear something that stands out and people like will, won't forget you, whether you're good or not. And I like that, like kind of stuck with me for a while. Cause you would like, you'd see a guy on the East coast. I think his name was Curtis and he would wear an orange one piece. And no matter who you are or, who, or where you were, you saw that guy and you remembered him. And so I kind of like took this like all denim suit for a long time. Every contest I did from like 18 to 21 I would wear a denim suit <laughs> and just try to stand out and um so I had that 
alter ego for quite a while and I eventually grew out of him but yeah jean jacket he's jean jacket jeff he's still in there somewhere i just got to bust him out every once in a while love that well thank you very much for coming on today it was awesome to chat with you and get to know you and uh i wish you the best of luck with your business you want to leave us off with anything no, just, um, I, you know, appreciate that you're out there uh, spreading like some awareness of like the sport and getting some people on here. So um, I'm uh, definitely a listener and it's cool to get the opportunity to talk to you when you reached out. I was like, hell yeah, definitely. Uh, we can have a ski conversation and uh, yeah, just uh, going into like however my post was received it is not a retirement i'm not like quitting and moving on it was just like um wanted to kind of start like a, a new phase and continue to like have skiing as like my heart and soul but just not do it from like a sponsored side do it for the love oh yeah All right.